Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We often picture the difference between the church and the world in kind of vague and even trivial terms. The passage we're about to read in Hebrews describes this difference as existing between two sacrificial systems. And the writer of Hebrews, he's just quoting Psalms 40 to declare Christ is the end of sacrifice. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And so really the ultimate issue is what sacrifice do you believe in? Do you believe in the sacrificial systems of this world, which would include Judaism, or do you believe in the world established by the sacrifice of Christ? because it really constitutes an alternative world. And so whether we have in view violence on the largest scale, such as war, or on the smallest scale, such as the struggle within the individual, I would argue the same basic sacrificial structure and dynamic is at work. Life is sacrificed in war, But isn't the same thing true on the individual level that maybe the self-punishment involved in guilt or the intrinsic self-harm involved in addiction? It becomes a kind of justification, its own justification. And so the life sacrificed is one's own, but it too is a self-justifying system that creates a kind of alternative reality. You know, that's what we say, that the first victim of war is truth. And the presumption is that once lives are sacrificed in fighting a war, it will be difficult, if not impossible, to declare the war a mistake. Once you've invested people's lives in this cause, the truth is lost that it was perhaps a futility. And so the first casualty of war is truth. How do you tell the truth without betraying the sacrifice of those who accepted the terms of battle? And so war is a sacrificial system that creates its own truth. It is its own justification. Stanley Harwis, from whom I'm drawing several of these illustrations, describes the battle in Korea for Porkchop Hill. It illustrates the moral logic at the heart of war. Porkchop Hill was a strategic point. I think it was shaped like a pork chop. And it controlled access to the Inchon Valley. And in the course of the war, Porkchop Hill had changed hands many times. And late in the war, the hill had been retaken by the American troops, but at a terrible cost. And by the end of the battle, there were fewer than a dozen American soldiers left at the top of the hill. And this was in the last stages of the war. The peace talks were already going on. And the Americans were afraid that if they withdrew the dozen men left on Porkchop Hill, that this would be interpreted, you know, as a loss, as a retreat. 
and it wouldn't give them strength in the negotiations for peace. And this would prolong the war. And so they were sure the enemy would counterattack and the dozen left would be killed. And yet if the Americans reinforced the men at the top of the hill, well then more than a dozen would be killed. And there was a debate at division headquarters. The result that they did re reinforce them and then of course many more people died on Porkchop Hill. And the justification for the decision to reinforce was that if they had not done so, it would have dishonored the memory of all the men who had died on Porkchop Hill. The more sacrificed to honor past sacrifices, the more the moral stakes for which the war or the battle which has been fought or is being fought must be raised. And so the sacrifice of life would be betrayed by the truth that the battle was for nothing. Many wars were for nothing. Tell me what World War I was about. Nobody knows. The lie that the war was justified will serve then in place of the truth. And the narrative of patriotism, laying down one's life for friends that we talked about last week, makes sense of war and this sense comes with its own morality and something like its own religion. And so one of the things implicit in any war is kind of the eternalizing. If your people are going to die, you have to say, well, this state or this entity or whatever you're fighting the war for is fought for something that's enduring forever, which of course is already a lie. The survival or eternalizing of the state, though, is implicit. Carolyn Marvin, who has written extensively on war and reflections on sacrifice, notes that enduring sociologically is synonymous with religious devotion. That is, she's saying if it's just a religion, if you think your society or your tribe or your nation is the reality that's going to endure. That is your religion. And she equates American nationalism with a form of religion, as it is devotion to this idea of an enduring state that defines many people's lives. Dorothy Day, who started the Catholic Worker, she said, well, that's why we have, you know, we have these phrases, this God talk, she called it, in God we trust, in one nation under God, that really it's a kind of atheism, because what you're really doing is you're using the expedient of Christianity, the precepts of Jesus Christ, that Christianity is reduced to a kind of expediency to serve the state. And so the real religion is the state religion. And she says something that's sort of unthinkable. It's kind of the secular blasphemy. She says it's better that the United States be liquidated than that she may survive by war. War creates a liturgical character very much on the order of ancestor worship, which we're familiar with having lived in Japan, in which the ultimate eternal obligation is to those who have died. You know, maybe on behalf of the nation. So that to speak of the nation in any but absolute terms is to dishonor the nation. That's the reason many Japanese don't become Christians, because to become a Christian would be to dishonor the dead. You don't want to dishonor the state, the nation state, or the dead, by in any way lessening their death. And so the society built on death, on the sacrifices of war, 
are bound together by the felt necessity, you got to repay those sacrifices in a kind of patriotism. Or in the case of religious ancestor worship, you've got to venerate the dead, and you can't cease venerating them by becoming a Christian. In a sense, it may be even more simple than this. There's a war correspondent, his name is Chris Hedges, and he spent his whole career covering war. And it became thrilling for him so that he needed to do this. He says, war is a force, this is the title of his book, war is a force that gives us meaning. I learned early on that war forms its own culture. The rush of battle is a potent and often lethal addiction. For war is a drug, one I ingested for many years. It is peddled by mythmakers, historians, war correspondents, filmmakers, novelists, and the state, all of whom endow it with qualities it often does possess. Excitement, exoticism, power, chances to rise above our small stations in life, and a bizarre and fantastic universe that has a grotesque and dark beauty. It dominates culture, distorts memory, corrupts language, and infects everything around it, even humor, which becomes preoccupied with the grim perversities of smut and death. The enduring attraction of war is this. Even with its destruction and carnage, he says, it can give us what we long for in life. It can give us purpose, meaning, a reason for living. Only when we are in the midst of conflict does the shallowness and vapidness of much of our lives become apparent. Trivia dominates our conversations and increasingly our airways, and war is an enticing elixir. It gives us resolve, a cause. He says it allows us to be noble. And so war can make the world coherent. It's understandable because the world is constructed as black and white. It's them and us. But he also notes that war creates a bond between combatants found almost nowhere else in our lives. The bond of brothers. War does so because soldiers at war are bound by suffering for the pursuit of a higher good. Through war we discover that though we may seek happiness, far more important is meaning. And he says, tragically, war is sometimes the most powerful way in human society to achieve meaning. One of the books that I looked at is by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And he's produced the definitive book on killing. That's the name of his book, On Killing. And in a way, the study of killing in combat, he, he says, is very much like the study of sex. He says, killing is a private, intimate occurrence of tremendous intensity in which the destructive act becomes psychologically very much like the procreative act. For those who have never experienced it, the depiction of battle that Hollywood has given us and the cultural mythology that Hollywood is based upon, he says, appear to be about as useful in understanding killing as pornographic movies would be in trying to understand the intimacy of marriage which explains why civilian life becomes so unsatisfying for those who've experienced war. People can't adjust back to life without violence and war. And so the meaning often assumed to be given by participation in the war, especially in the West, it's drawn historically 
on the sacrifice of Christ. That's this, the book by a man named Alan Francis. He calls attention to the continuing influence of chivalry and how in English and German soldiers in World War I. Remember I talked last week, they took Christian imagery and applied it directly to war. He uses a lot of pictorial evidence and he makes the connection between Christ's death and those who die in war. He says it was at the heart of the sacrifice of the English and the Germans and the Americans who died in World War I. And he draws on a wide selection of literature and images from the medieval period along with photographs, memorials, postcards. And Franson shows how such media shaped a chivalric ideal of male sacrifice based on the passion of Jesus Christ. He demonstrates, for example, how the wounded body of Christ became the inspiration for heroic male suffering in battle. For some men, the crucifixion inspired a culture of revenge, one in which Christ's bleeding wounds were venerated as badges of valor and honor. Now he goes on to say not everybody did that. Some saw the imagery of Christ as turning them away from war. But the idea is the language of sacrifice continues to play a key role. It's there in World War II also, in the Iraq War. The language of sacrifice is particularly important for societies like the United States in which war remains our most determinative common experience. Maybe this is strange for a Canadian, but try to tell the U.S. history without wars. In high school, that's all we did. You know, you learn the dates of the war. That's the history. Carolyn Marvin describes at Dartmouth University that the artist Jose Orozco, a Hispanic artist, he's put up a series of murals that trace the history of American civilization, the whole continent. And near the beginning of the panels, he has a panel that's depicting ancient human sacrifice. And it portrays the Aztec ceremony of slicing the heart from a live ritual victim. And by legend, the god Huzalpoctl, who led the Mexica, where we get the name Mexican, if you ever have seen the Mexican flag, it's actually a portrayal of this god. He leads the Mexica to an island in Lake Texcoco where the ripped out heart of his murdered rival had taken root in a flowering pickly prayer with a giant eagle resting upon it. It's the representation of the God and the God's desire for hearts and human life, for human sacrifice. It's there on the Mexican flag. And then you go through the panels and the last panel is of modern sacrifice and it depicts an elaborate flag-draped bier flanked with memorial wreaths bearing another sacrificial victim. But this time it's a nationalist kind of victim and he pictures the modern religion you know, of America, American nationalism. And the idea is the history of the continent is a history of sacrifice. This is precisely, I think, the sacrifice that Christ displaces. In a book that she wrote with David Engel, they begin their book, Blood, Sacrifice in the Nation, Totem Rituals and the American Flag. They ask this question, what binds the nation together? How vulnerable to ethnic and religious antagonism is our sense of nationhood? 
What is the source of the malaise we have felt for so much of the post-World War II period? Above all, what moves citizens to put group interests ahead of their own, even to surrendering their lives, she asked. No strictly economic explanations, no great man theory of history, no imminent group threat fully accounts for why members of enduring groups such as nations consent to sacrifice their immediate well-being and that of their children to the group. Whatever does tells us a great deal about what makes nation states enduring and viable. She says this book argues that violent blood sacrifice makes enduring groups cohere. Even though such a claim challenges our most deeply held notions of civilized behavior. The sacrificial system that binds American citizens has a sacred flag at its center. Patriotic rituals revere it as the embodiment of a bloodthirsty totem god who organizes killing energy. And they go on in their book, they talk about that self-sacrifice is the theme of the American civil religion, of patriotism, and that is nowhere better exemplified than in the American fetish of the flag. And they provide evidence of this. And one of the things they describe is the story of Dwight D. Eisenhower tells the story when he was at West Point and he had just joined West Point and they'd gone through the hazing and the induction. And Eisenhower begins by describing his bitterness at this rough first day of initiation into West Point. And he says he was weary and he was resentful. And then Eisenhower writes, however, toward evening we assembled outdoors and with the American flag floating majestically above, we were sworn in as cadets of the United States Military Academy. It was an impressive ceremony. As I looked up at our national colors and swore my allegiance, I realized humbly that now I belonged to the flag. It is a moment I have never forgotten. The flag is clearly the American form of idolatry, which explains why it is often installed in places of worship. So war creates its own culture. It creates a morality and ethic. War creates a fellowship that is seldom found in other forms of life. But it does so because war subjects lives to sacrifices otherwise unavailable. I would claim that there's even something more immediate in the justifying power of killing. Another book that I read is a book by Richard Rhodes. Very similar title, it's entitled Why They Kill. And Rhodes follows the career of a criminologist. This man's name is Lonnie Athens. And Athens was raised by a brutally domineering father. And he sets out to figure what makes people violent. And he spends a decade, he's actually writing his PhD dissertation, and he spends a decade interviewing several hundred violent convicts, men and women of varied background and ethnicity. And he coins a term, but he could discover something, and he calls it violentization. He says that people go through a four-stage process, and he describes four experiences. He says if they have these four experiences, they're violent. It doesn't matter the person, he just says, this is the common experience. 
most people, almost any human being, can evolve into someone who will assault, rape, or murder another human being. He goes actually to death rows, and uh, he discovered the killer sees the murder as justified. It was always necessary. And the act itself, he says, is viewed as righteous wrath. It's almost like the individual seems to be describing himself as channeling a kind of divine or religious anger. And so it's not simply that one lies to others about the efficacy of violence, but the violence becomes the foundation of a truth so that one is blinded to the truth or to the reality. And so to state it within the perspective of war, the sacrifice in lo of life and war, it's a self-justifying system which generates its own ground of truth. But the same system functions at the individual level. And so it may be that the life of the state on behalf of the dead, you know, the dead soldier is memorialized. Maybe it seems to be more tangible than our own sin, our own grab for life or hedonism or addiction or the acts of violence we do to ourselves and others. But it seems to be a matter of scale. The state builds concrete monuments to its war dead and the cult of the dead. You know, they have their own uniforms and special salutes and flag. But maybe individual desire is no less tangible and it too is memorialized in compulsive repetition. The Bible says the dog returns to its vomit and the pig returns to its wallow. The individual has her own self-justifying sacrifice which creates personal truth, personal rituals of the same order. So we might say it's not just that truth is the first casualty of war, but an alternative truth is generated by both corporate and individual violence. And in both instances, the significance is compulsively repeated. That is the meaning of life. And maybe the deceit of the system is just clear in what is memorialized. The dead soldier represents life, freedom, the ultimate sacrifice is what you know, makes life possible, makes it worthwhile. And the concrete memorial or tomb, it literally reifies, it eternalizes, or it makes death a kind of infinite value, foundational to the life of the state. This bad infinite, it can grip us personally when the concrete tomb of our own imaginary sense of self, the ego, becomes the foundation and energy behind all that we are and do. We could cadaverize ourselves. We turn ourselves into a body, a cadaver. We memorialize ourselves on the order of a concrete object. And we imagine this is life. We establish the self as an object. You know, he who would save his life. Well, actually, you lose your life. Because it's the misperception of who you are, and it's the misperception, the misunderstanding of what life is. This, of course, is idolatry, the idol or the concrete object that you might sacrifice everything for. It illustrates the psychological move of sacrificial religion or the sacrificial individual. The tomb or the idol or the war memorial is a sign or the bearer of the sign in which the body becomes unimportant. 
It's covered over, you know, it just is a sign of something else. For the individual, the body becomes the bearer of a sign. And what is written over the body has displaced the reality. This is a biblical principle called the body of sin or the body of death or the principle of the flesh. It's not simply that the physical body is the problem, but it's the body as given a significance that it does not and cannot bear. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 6.13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. It can become an eternal circulating system of signs. You know, just eating can bear a kind of eternal weight, or he actually is talking about sex, can take on a kind of mysticism, where it's presumed that the body is the means to life. In this way, the flesh, in Paul's description, becomes a principle unto itself. He calls it a principle for death that he equates with immorality. And the physical body is written over with a significance which obscures or transforms natural drives and desires. This is immorality, Paul says. And what it forgets in 1 Corinthians 6.13, the Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord. Maybe the body of state becomes the same sort of self-justifying, closed entity. And ironically, with the absolutizing of the state, you know, this is the Constantinian shift, suddenly the state is Christian. The state is Christianized. And just as the body becomes the container of the soul, the state is identified with the millennial kingdom, as if this is the kingdom of God, the city set on a hill that will be said about Rome, but is also said about the United States. Just as the physical body is made the empirical bearer of the soul, it amounts to a refusal of reality, of the mortal contingencies, of the tragedies, of the sufferings, whether it's personal or corporate. And the state becomes divine, it becomes godlike. It can create its own heaven and its own hell. Actually, Ernst Kantowitz did a study many years ago. He called it the king's two bodies. There's the king, just the guy, but then there's the king as the representative of the state. It's like he has two bodies. His body bears the body politic. And of course, any idiot can be a king. Literally, many idiots were kings because all you need is the marker of this exalted sign of state. And what is of enduring significance is the sign and not the body per se, you know, not the the individual. And so given this genealogy, what I've tried to say is the war, the war within and the war without is the same thing. It is the same problem. Christ has defeated this problem, this sacrificial system. He's established peace. He's established peace not only for the individual, but the world itself has been freed from the lie, giving rise to the necessity for this personal or this corporate violence. Sin and war depend upon the economy of a lie, which Christ has exposed and he's abolished. Maybe it's hard to say, you know, which is harder to believe, that Christ has freed us corporately from the necessities of war, or that Christ has freed us individually from the struggle of sin. If the war within and the war without consists of the same sort of violence or sin, 
then redemption from sin is both an individual and corporate or worldwide possibility. I believe that's the good news of the message of the gospel. Christ has abolished war. It's already done. He's brought peace. The gospel calls us to live lives of peace as an accomplished fact. It's already there. The resource and reality is there of this world that we can begin to live out of. This is what the church is about. We are living in a different world, a different kingdom with a different citizenship in which war is abolished. We don't do war in the church. The recreation of the world or the culmination of creation, you know, this is what is portrayed throughout the New Testament. It means that the Christian lives in a world freed of the seeming necessities of sin. That's why Christ came to save us from this illegitimate, lying kind of sacrifice. Christ has brought an end to the necessity of sacrifice and death. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The God, small g God here, you know, maybe the God of state or the God of the individual, the God of the nation, who through sacrifice and death, you would satisfy this God, that God is dethroned. The community of the saved testify to the end of sacrifice. And the war to end all wars, well, that was already fought on the cross. The all-consuming struggle that has consumed countless lives, it's finished. Christ emptied out the tomb. He leaves no one stranded in its memorializing necessities. As Stanley Horowitz puts it, the church is an alternative to war. The sacrifices of war are no longer necessary. We are now free to live free of the necessity of violence and killing. War and the sacrifices of war have come to an end. War has been abolished in Christ. The church sets forth an alternative ethic, no longer under the constraints of sin and war. Peace is established. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.